welcome to the Is That So podcast. My name is Sahela and I am the host and chief content officer here at the Is That So podcast. Follow along each week as I share stories, pose questions, and provide insights on various wellness, travel, and relationship topics aimed to help us all navigate through this rapidly evolving modern world a little bit easier. Here at the Is That So podcast, we believe that life should always be a work in progress. So come learn, laugh, and listen in on unfiltered stories and conversations so that we can open new doors to inspiration, happiness, and forward thinking together. Hello, and welcome back to the Is That So podcast. Today on the podcast, I have invited author and mental health advocate, Amelia Zachary, to come on the show and share her incredibly vulnerable and moving story. But before I introduce her, I just want to let everyone listening know that some topics discussed in today's episode could be triggering. And in the case that you are triggered, I have put a link to Checkpoint Org in the description of this episode where you can easily find numbers to your local helpline should you feel like you need it. Amelia's story is one of sexual assault, mental illness, suicide ideations, relationship struggles, motherhood, and healing. It is a story that moved me at my core, and I knew as soon as she was done sharing it that such a story needed to be amplified if we are going to help end the stigma around mental health and put a stop to rape culture. So without further ado, welcome, Amelia. Hi, I'm Amelia Zachary, and I'm a, an author, and I write about my realities of living after rape and bipolar disorder, and so I'm here to share my stories and hope that it'll help somebody. Thank you so much for coming, and I really appreciate you not only taking the time, but also finding the courage to come on the show today to share your story with everyone. I know that even if people can't personally relate to your story, they will certainly leave with new insights on what it's like to live with a mental illness and feel empowered to overcome their own trauma. So I thank and applaud you. Thank you. So to start, when you feel comfortable and ready, I'd love if you could, from the beginning, share your story with everyone. So I was born and raised in Malaysia, Mm -hmm. a pretty regular family. I have mom, dad, I have three siblings. We were very close-knit and pretty conservative with our core values. Mm -hmm. I was an excellent student doing very well at school. I qualified for a prestigious university of my choice. I had all these dreams and plans planned out. I was driven and I was very Mm sure-footed. In my first year of college, I was raped Mm -hmm. and my entire world collapsed. I was 19 years old at the time and I was afraid and confused and I really felt like I was trapped in a corner. Mm -hmm. I had done all the things that I was raised not to do. Girls don't go out at night. Girls don't party. Girls don't wear revealing clothes. Girls don't hang out with the wrong crowd. Mm -hmm. I had done all those things and then I was raped. So I couldn't go to my family feeling that I had brought shame onto my family. I was a big disappointment and it was the worst thing that could happen to a girl. Mm -hmm. To add on to that, everyone at college was talking about it. Everyone knew and I was spat on, I was chastised and humiliated. I was told repeatedly that I had asked for it and it was my fault. Oh my gosh. So I felt damaged and tainted and I was no longer a good girl because I had done something horrendously shameful. Mm -hmm. So... That's, that's where we were talking about the rape culture, right, Sohila? We, mm-hmm. we talked about how there's this toxic culture in our society that I think is universal. It's not like unique to Malaysia or where yeah. I grew up. Yeah. We talk about girls doing all the things to protect ourselves and the burden of self-protection is on the victim. Yeah. The culture that teaches us bad things don't happen to good girls. Yeah. Boys will do what boys do. So when something like this happens... 
there's a void where healing is not part of the script. And victims like myself are forced into isolation and to suffer in solitude. Yes. It's, it's become a shameful thing to seek help. It's absurd, really, to seek help for something I had done wrong. Because really, it's a violation. But this whole culture that's, that we are raised in teaches us that it is something that is active on the part of the victim. So the concept of seeking help, thanks to the perpetuated rape culture we live in, is lost to victims who need it the most. Yeah. Yeah, and it's such a hard thing to even process while you're going through all of this changes in terms of like how you're being perceived socially by your peers. And automatically, it's your fault. Yeah. And I was young and, you know, at that age, you, what you did, the whole knowledge base that I had was what I was raised with. Yeah. So how did your family react to such a situation? Honestly, I only told my family about six months ago when I started on my book. Oh, really? It was a, it was a huge coming out of ways, yeah. you know, because they had no idea. I had not told anybody. I had not told a soul and I had suffered through it and struggled through it all these years by myself and with my now husband. Mm-hmm. And so when I told my mom... I guess it was an easier thing to digest now that I've come a long way and I'm so far distanced from the incident. Mm -hmm. Did it affect how you behave? Did it affect your trajectory of your life? Absolutely. I retreated into myself and Mm -hmm. I started fantasizing my death. Oh my gosh. I was in so much pain that I became uh, numb. I started to feel like there was nothing left to live for. Mm -hmm. I was afraid to walk through the halls in college, so I was failing out of my classes. Mm -hmm. I had no friends. Mm -hmm. I couldn't face my family without feeling the immense shame and guilt. I was constantly looking over my shoulder, avoiding the rapists that roamed the halls. And so I stopped going to classes altogether. And then I kept thinking about death. Mm -hmm. Somehow that loneliness, I think, and that isolation pushed me into a corner and made me think about ending my life. And I had attempted it and I failed for the first time that year. Oh my goodness. But I mean, I later went on and completed my degree in a, in another university. My dreams were shattered because I had worked so hard yeah. to get into the first university that I wanted to, the university of my dreams. I had worked so hard all my life yeah. and all those dreams started to change. And I never did shake the ghost of trauma. Even in years after college, my isolation and numbness developed into self-destructive behavior. Yeah. I was reckless with my life I was drinking excessively I was partying on weekends and every weekday I was sleeping with so many men to numb the pain or to find an end I was hoping that something bad would happen and that would take away the responsibility of me taking my life yeah and I I had a great job Mm -hmm. I managed to get a great job and I was good at it at first and then my reckless behavior, I showed up half the time hungover or late or, yeah. and then I started getting called out by my boss and I just quit. No plans. I just quit. Yeah. It's almost like a continuous cycle of self-sabotage Absolutely. because I didn't believe that I deserved anything better and I believed that I was damaged. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I thought that I was a complete and utter failure because I tried again. I tried again to kill myself and I failed again. I was interrupted. Mm-hmm. And so that made me feel like I'm either really stupid or really incompetent. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I'm a spiritual person. Yeah. And I figured that if I kept feeling at this, maybe there was a reason for my living and something clicked. 
it wasn't like a switch turned on you know i i didn't like just whoop like okay now i'm i'm better now and i'm not going to do this anymore and i'm i'm going to change my path in life yeah but i carried on with my recklessness because the pain was so immense and i had no tools or no knowledge about how to deal with the pain yeah but very soon after that i met my husband okay and uh, we were both in our 20s and we were loving life and i fell in love with him mm -hmm. somehow through the pain there was something different about him that I fell in love with him and I trusted him mm -hmm. and we lived together and he started realizing that the fun party me was actually a self-destructive version of myself. Yeah. And so he urged me to get professional help, okay. which we did together. Okay. And that's when I got my diagnosis of PTSD and bipolar disorder, which explained all the behaviors in the recent years post the rape. Yeah. What is it like to live with bipolar disorder? Um, so I think bipolar is often misconstrued, mm -hmm. even by myself at first, because I thought like people who have bipolar, they're crazy. I'm not crazy. That's not me. I, I refused to. I was in denial and I refused to accept the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But through treatment and my husband sat with me through the therapy and helped me through the first few sessions. And then I accepted that there was something wrong and he called out all my reckless behaviors and said that this is not these self-destructive behaviors are not healthy behaviors and yeah. if anything at all that we should at least address those and so i carried on with treatment so what i have there's so many types of bipolar yeah and so i can only speak to what i have which is bipolar 2 and i can only speak to my experience with mm -hmm. it because somebody else having bipolar 2 might have a different experience yeah so I have hypomanic episodes, which are milder form of mania, okay. which is abnormal levels of increasing energy and activity. I get incredibly creative. Okay. I was drawing portraits one time and I couldn't sleep and I couldn't stop. I was doing it for days. I didn't sleep for four days straight because I was drawing mm -hmm. and I was incredibly good at it. And then once the mania dies down, it's gone. Okay. And sometimes I'm irritable. I'm just... I'm just immensely irritable like nobody can speak to me or I have increased anxiety like for example like going to a party I could during an episode be invited to a party I walk up to the door and I'm paralyzed at the door mm -hmm. because I can't get in because I have all these racing thoughts in my mind and it's visceral it's physical mm -hmm. my heart's pounding overwhelming anxiety and it's physical you feel it my heart's pounding I'm sweating my my temperature's rising yeah and then I run back into the car and I, I can't I can't do it I get back in the car and I sit down and sometimes my husband's with me and he sits with me or I call him and he's like okay breathe and we use the tools that we have or sometimes if I need to I use medication mm -hmm. to get over just that anxiety of walking through a door mm-hmm and do you think all of this came from the fact that you were sexually assaulted? Or do you think that this is something that you would have maybe developed anyways? So bipolar disorder has a genetic predisposition. Mm -hmm. And some people, it never comes up. It's latent and mm -hmm. it doesn't ever manifest itself. And I had never had any symptoms before the rape. Okay. And so... Our theory through assessment and like retrospective investigations, we believe that it was post-rape that bi bipolar surfaced. Okay. Wow. So we talked about the manic states of it. Mm -hmm. 
And depressive states, I think people think that it's laying in bed or just not being able to do anything. Some of the times it is. It's the kind of very heavy lead ball on my chest that I can't move or I cannot cry or I cannot think away those things because there isn't a source. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's also doing stuff with it in my mind. What do you mean? I'm still, I'm still sure going grocery shopping. I'm still driving my kids to school. But in the whole time, I'm struggling with this whole feeling of worthlessness and this whole feeling of grief for no reason. And does that go on for days as well as, as your manic episodes? Like, is it the same? Yes, it does. And that's what defines the bipolar disorder, that it is prolonged and it's cyclical. So it comes like up and then down. Yeah, um, it doesn't have to. Sometimes I go back to baseline and then a different time a depressive episode happens, but it repeats itself in cycles. Okay. So I, it, it's a pattern. You can see a pattern in it. Right. And that's, so I mean, like people overspend all the time, right? But the problem is, do you overspend? Is this a pattern in overspending over a period of time where in conjunction with other symptoms? Yeah. So it's hard to say that it's just one thing because there's a lot of things that happens at the same time. And also a huge misconception also is that I live in bipolar, that I am bipolar. I have bipolar disorder and I get into episodes, but I don't live in those episodes all the time, 365 days a year. Yeah, yeah. And they pass. Yeah. So just to get this straight, so you could go through a manic episode baseline and then you know you're going to have a depressive episode at some point in the future yes okay and there's no way of actually preparing or um, well there are triggers sometimes there are triggers there are things that exacerbate the manifestation of the symptoms like extreme stress okay or extreme grief or something or some kind of trigger yeah And so I know now with the tools that I have to manage those things, manage the stress. And I know not to do things that I believe is going to bring me overwhelming stress because that will trigger my episodes. Right. And so you keep saying tools. What does the treatment look like for bipolar disorder? And are you on any medication? Yes. For me, bipolar disorder is not something that's going away. Okay. It's a lifelong part of life. But it is not a sentence of punishment anymore now that I found the ways to manage it. Mm-hmm. There's a biological factor and then there's the environmental factor to this illness. Mm-hmm. In my treatment, I'm doing combination of drug therapy and talk therapy. Okay. And that, for me, I have found to be the most effective way in managing my episodes mm-hmm. and prolonging my baseline states. Mm-hmm. So the talk therapy that I do it has been so essential in my healing. I can say that now I'm not only healing, but I'm in a place of growth. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I've been using, well, I'm sure my therapist uses a lot more, but the tools that I take home with me are CBT and ACT tools, which are cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. which is basically managing my thoughts and identifying cognitive distortions, or um, we also call them thinking errors and, re- yes. and reframing them. Yes. And I know I do that, you know, a lot of people do that and it's a good exercise for sure. So like, and then I also do ACT, which is acceptance commitment therapy, Mm -hmm. which is basically, it's essentially a practice in mindfulness, accepting what has happened for what it is and being mindful and present in the moment and to allow feelings to be feelings without fighting them. 
Okay. And so that we can be present with the current reality and then reevaluating my negative self-talk and committing to a reframed outlook. So I use these two tools regularly on my own Yeah. because it can be paralyzing, right? Just to have a simple interaction. When I'm in the episodes, my mind's all over the place and my mind's going at a thousand miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Like it can be a simple thing as, hey, you look great today. Somebody sees me and says, hey, you look great today. And my mind immediately goes to a million negative thoughts. Like, why is she saying this? Do I look awful? Did I wear the wrong color? Is there something wrong? Is there something on my face? Why is she saying this? Is she, does she, do I look sad? Is she trying to make me feel better? You know, just a million yeah. irrational thoughts come through my mind. And yes. I have the need to identify the errors and then reframe it and multiply that by every single interaction I have during an episode. Wow. That's, that's that is that sounds so overwhelming. It's overwhelming and it's exhausting and it used to be overwhelming and like paralyzing, but now I think mm -hmm. with consistency in my treatment, I've been able to practice and exercise it and now it's become second nature to me. Well, I'm really happy to hear that, but I'm also very curious to know how, if at all, your diagnosis has affected your relationship, or maybe it hasn't, maybe it's made it even closer and, and your bond stronger with your husband. It definitely did, because when we were dating, he didn't understand all the irrational behavior, mm -hmm. but he loved me. There was something, this is where I say, like, it's it was meant to be. Yeah, there was something different with him. There was something different that he he was with me and it was our relationship was something very different yeah. and so i believe that it was um something worth exploring with treatment mm -hmm. and him also understanding through treatment what the realities of the illness was and identifying those symptoms in my behaviors helped him understand better yeah and it gave him reason for compassion reason for kindness and just empathy, understanding what was going on. So that in itself helped me a lot. Yeah. I'm so glad that you had someone that in a time where I know, like when I was going through something similar, I had lost a lot of love for myself. You were able to like find that in someone else who didn't give up on you, like you had given up on yourself kind of. Oh, I, I had relationships that were bad before him. Mm -hmm. Like I was, I was in an abusive relationship for a long time. He humiliated me in public and hit me in private. I stayed in that relationship for uh, a little more than three years. Mm -hmm. I believe that that was what I, I deserved because I was tainted. And he made me believe that I would never find anyone to love me because I was damaged goods. Mm-hmm. So he ended up cheating on me and leaving me. And so oh after gosh. that, I actually didn't believe that I was worthy of love. I didn't understand the concept of respect. Yeah. And so relationships became something different. It became casual sex mm -hmm. and sex was a power play for me. Yeah. It was make a mark and hit the mark, try to fill the void for a night and repeat on loop. Yeah. That loneliness was incredibly deep and damaging. But I, at the time, I felt like, oh, having the bed warm seemed like the right solution. Like I didn't, I didn't need love. Mm -hmm. I could get sex if I wanted sex. It was this contorted concept yeah. of what sex was to me. Yeah. Because it didn't mean anything more than what had happened to me. Yeah. It was something ugly. It was something nasty. And I felt like that love didn't exist. Yeah. And it also seems like, and I know for, for me, it felt this way, but it was a way for me to like take my power back in a way. Yeah, 
that I was in charge. Yes. That's right. Yeah. And that it's and my so, body and I can do whatever I want with it. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so obviously like doing that, it wasn't very healthy for me mm-hmm. because it wasn't a very healthy view on like what real relationships could look like. Yeah. And it changed when I met my husband. Mm-hmm. Like we, he was different. He was patient. He was kind. He was affectionate. We had intelligent conversations and he wanted to know what I thought about things. And at some point, I think I felt like I understood what respect meant. Yeah. But our relationship was not without challenges. Yeah. For me constantly testing how far I could go to push him away. Yeah. Oh, there's that destructive behavior again. That's right. And so treatment definitely has helped us come together. And we are, I think we are a team now. Mm -hmm. We're equal partners. And he, in our home, in in parenting and helping me heal in supporting whatever I'm doing, he's an equal partner and that's helped a lot with my healing and growth. So you mentioned parenting just now. I'm so curious to know what it's like to parent with a mental illness like bipolar disorder. This has been always a challenging one for me because I've always wanted to have children and Mm -hmm. I was told by one therapist that I should not ever have children because I have bipolar. Okay. So I defied that nonsense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I now have two beautiful children. I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. They are the air that I breathe. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, I fought so hard to conceal my illness from the world. I wanted to show that I could indeed be a mother. Yeah. I cried in private and struggled with my newborns and my toddlers. Then when my oldest was about four, she realized I'd been crying a lot in bed as she was playing in my bedroom. You know, I used to have her in my bedroom so I could watch her. Yeah. She asked my husband why mommy was always crying. And so we decided our parenting needed to be more transparent. And we talked about it with them. Wow, that's a big concept for a four-year-old. How did she react? Well, we keep we keep developing on the conversations as she gets uh-huh. older, right? Okay. And as a four-year-old, she understood that mommy was ill and this is how the illness presents itself. Okay. And so this is what we need from you. This is what mommy needs. This is what we need from you. And you need, we need you to stay in the room with mommy. We need you to not throw tantrums. We need you to do these mm-hmm. little things, you know, at the age. And as she's growing, those conversations have developed and we... We have spoken more about things. And now she comes to me and checks on me and says, are you crying from nowhere again? Mm-hmm. And now she's come to a point where she can ask me, what do you need? Oh, my goodness. What can I do? That's so sweet. How can I help? It's sweet, but it's also for me, I think it's empowering to raise children who are empathetic and generous with their kindness and, you know, to be able to do those things. Disappointments are common. Mm-hmm. Disappointments are common where they have to be so flexible and postpone plans because I'm in an episode. Yeah. We prepare our children for episodes. So everyone falls into a beautiful flow to support me when an episode strikes. We taught my oldest how to make lunches for her and her sister. We have snacks and drinks available next to my bed. Mm -hmm. If I'm depressed and stuck in bed, we set up an area in my bedroom where they play and study so I can keep them safe so they can independently keep themselves busy. Mm-hmm. Through this, I am still vigilant and caring and loving, drawing whatever I, I can to be there for my children. But they definitely give me strength to pull through. I cannot imagine this would be different if, let's say, a mother is injured or mostly bedridden. Yeah. These are things that my children have adapted to. This is our normal. It's not conventional. I'm not like other Facebook moms. But this is my reality and we make the best of it. 
My children are highly empathetic. They're kind, they're generous with their love and on her own. I, so this is how amazing they are and how they're thriving in life. My, my oldest, who is only six at this point, has hosted events in our city of Lexington to solve social issues that she's passionate about. Wow. We ran 19 5Ks in 19 days because she wanted to raise funds to contribute to a nonprofit that was fighting food insecurity during COVID. Wow. We have 126 trees in Lexington that's planted because she wanted to do it. Wow. She's active in school and she's well loved by her teachers. My youngest is growing into herself. She's now only four, but she's incredibly well spoken and they both have incredible emotional vocabulary that mm -hmm. we have found to be so important in raising them to be empowered persons in a world that smothers that as weakness. Yeah. You know, people and tell you being emotional is a huge weakness. Yeah. So my children are thriving while supporting their mother through an invisible illness that they have accepted and they adapt to. Mm -hmm. That's in a, in a long nutshell <laughs> how yeah. parenting is for us. Do you still struggle with suicidal ideations or has that passed too? Um, so suicidal ideation, of course, comes and goes. And um, I'm sure they're exacerbated by your manic episodes or depressive episodes, rather. Well, both, well, both of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I try to remember I have an amazing, well, I, life is fulfilling. Mm -hmm. I have two beautiful children who are thriving and contributing members uh, to society I have an amazing marriage to a man I love with all my being mm -hmm. who loves me back. But when I'm in an episode, the guilt sets in sometimes. Yeah. Everyone would be better off without me. They would be better with someone who was present all the time instead of someone that needs to be excused from life for certain periods sometimes because I'm ill. Yeah. I've imagined my ways to kill myself to make it easier for everyone around me. I've imagined running away to make life better. But mm -hmm. <clears throat> I catch these thoughts and I sit with them and I use the mindfulness tools to deal with those thoughts of being present. I catch the tail instead of chase it. Yeah. And so I accept that I now am in a place where I accept that I'm deserving of this life that I have built. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> and we say this a lot, that feelings are not bad and feelings are not facts. Yeah. So I choose to focus on the bare bone facts, mm -hmm. which are my life is fulfilling. Oh. That is so good to hear. And sometimes you have these guilty feelings about the past and what has happened. There's a saying among my friends. We say there are no wrong cards. We were on a trip in Sedona and we were doing tarot cards. Okay. And the lady who was reading the tarot cards had these cards keep popping out. And we were like, oh, no, oh, we're trying to pick them back up for her. And she's like, no, that's your card. And then we had this epiphany. There are no wrong cards. Isn't that what life is? Yeah. You know, we are dealt the cards that you are dealt. There are no wrong cards. And so ugly or nasty or not, here I am and yeah. here I stand. So I, I feel like there's a quote about, you know, you're not guaranteed the cards that you're dealt in life, but you are obligated to play the hell out of them. I love that. Yeah. I think it was Cheryl Stray that said that. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It's not always easy, the journey that you have to walk, but you do have to make the most of it. And um, especially if you want to find fulfillment and purpose and happiness. So, you know, I wanted to ask you, though, obviously you have like gone through treatment and have medication and have these tools, but 
treatment and healing are very two different things, I think. One can be very by the book and scientific where healing takes a lot more digging, a lot more awareness and introspective work. So how is your healing journey going? My healing journey, I have to continue to stay connected. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of things to try and stay connected to my inner self and my inner voice and my truth. And there's a lot of noise. I find there's a lot of noise in our lives. There's there's social media and there's um, TV. TV and yeah. there's our children and obligations and responsibilities. Absolutely. And so I try to retreat. I try to find space where I can be quiet, be still and be with myself. Yeah. And whether that's my backyard or going on a hike or... You know, just finding time or being in my bedroom and finding time to be by myself. Mm -hmm. And that's the environmental factors to healing. Mm -hmm. I mean, like to bipolar, to to treatment in bipolar, right? Yeah. What I talked about is the biological stuff and the drugs and therapy and treatment and all of that. But the environmental stuff, I have to get... I have to get my life in order in order to keep it in a balanced state. And that is a lot of inner searching, looking for meaning and purpose. And I'm in a place where I believe there is a higher purpose. Mm-hmm. I believe that there is a higher power. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you call it the universe or God or, you know, whatever, whatever you call it. I believe there is a higher power and there is a higher purpose for each and every one of us. And when I connect with nature, when I'm on a hike or something, I like to make myself small. And I believe that I am one small being in this vast universe. Mm -hmm. And so that makes me feel like I belong to something. Mm -hmm. And that I have a purpose that I've not yet realized or I may be realizing now. I'm not sure. But Mm -hmm. there is a purpose. I believe that there is a purpose. And I'm at peace with the faith in the unknown. Yeah. And so that's how I think I get by in my my spiritual self. And so is it through doing these moments of self-awareness and being by yourself that you decided to start writing your memoir? Or what was it that really like brought that into fruition? So the memoir came about as a tribute to my children. Okay. Because we were talking about these difficult things to talk about. Mm-hmm. These are not things that uh, we can easily story tell to our children. Yeah. So we were talking about all the stories and all the things that happened, me and my husband. And my husband suggested that I write a book. Oh, okay. And so I believe that I want to be part of these conversations that normalize mental illness, that eradicates rape culture, that makes this world a better place for my children. Yeah. For all our children. Then maybe, you know, when the time comes, there will be a place where our children can don't have to struggle the way I did on yeah. my own because the shame and guilt is no longer there because it's a normalized medical condition. Yeah. Or it is accepted as a trauma and that the society will hold them and heal them instead of blame them. Yeah. And there'll be more room to have conversations without being scared that your parents will turn your back on you or that your friends will shun you or society won't accept you. Yeah. 
Well, it's not easy work. So I thank you very much for sharing that. And if anyone, you know, is going through something like this or knows someone who is, Amelia has been kind enough to give us some resources. So you can find those all in the show notes. So I, I shared those resources with you. I know those are the books that I have found changed my life. Mm-hmm. It changed the way I understood how my brain worked and I understood how I was thinking about things. And I think they're helpful for anybody, not just people who are going through mental illness. I think they're also helpful for people who are helping those yeah, who are going through mental illness. And that's such an important, that's another part that's very important if we have a few minutes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's another important part. I did not do this alone. Mm-hmm. I had some support from near and far. My amazing husband, of course, he picks up and takes over our household entirely when I'm in an episode. No judgment, no resentment. We live here and we have no family around us. Yeah. <clears throat> and my mother-in-law is 14 hours away and my best friend is in Portugal. <laughs> but they answer the phone at all hours and stay with me for hours to help me through the work that I need. Yeah. So I've also learned that I I've learned to search and feed on the random little kindness from strangers. Mm-hmm. There are strangers in the restaurants or grocery stores who are kind to me or my children. And those small little kindness help me get through rough spots. So I wish that, for example, when I was pregnant, and I'm sorry, I just had a newborn. Yeah. And my oldest was about two. We we're walking into this grocery store and they're both crying. They're both screaming. And I hadn't slept for days and I was crying and we were walking into the group. I just needed to get formula and I needed to get some food, some snacks. And they were both screaming and crying. And you can imagine how overwhelming that was for me. Yeah. And up walks this man from the florist. And he brings two balloons, one for my baby and one for my older daughter. And so they were both laughing. And my daughter hugged him and then they became friends ever since. And there was, it was this tiny show of kindness, but it was an, it was an immense effect on me. I was entirely grateful for that moment of like rescue. Yeah. He rescued me from a... I know it seems like a small situation, but I'm sure a lot of mothers can relate to this um, I mean, I don't have kids and I feel like I can relate to that, you know? It's just like, it just goes to show, like, be a nice person. You don't know what other people are going through. And they've been friends. They've been friends ever since. We still get balloons every time we go to the grocery store now, whenever we see him. And so, like, what I'm trying to say is if you're going to help somebody, it really has to come from a place that is truly altruistic, truly with no expectations. A lot of people help thinking that I'll help you get through A, B and C, then you should be able to do D through Z. Yeah. And for someone with mental illness, like I was experiencing, there was no way I was going to get through the end by myself. And at the same time, I had so much shame and guilt that I wouldn't reach out for help. Yeah. It was only when I understood that there were people who were willing to help for no expectation whatsoever did I reach out and take the help. And so be gentle and be kind and compassionate and be mindful, cognizant of the fact that it is a struggle to even ask for help in the first place. So if you're going to provide help, do it with your entire heart. Yeah. And I think people can tell, you know, when someone is doing it genuinely and when they feel like it's part of their duty as a friend. And so I feel like one incites guilt into like the person who's actually going through the episode. I think when I'm going through the episodes, I feel guilt anyway. 
Okay. So like, yeah. it, it's just, it's just the nature of the illness that yeah. like, it's not that I want to feel guilt, but the guilt is just there. So like, if somebody's going to help me, then it's on them to like, know that they cannot have expectations. Yeah. Because in that state that I'm in, I'm unable to respond in the way that is rational, mm-hmm. that you are logical. Mm-hmm. So understanding that you don't understand everything is a big part of it. As somebody who's, who wants to be an ally or advocate for somebody going through mental illness, understanding that there are a lot of things that you won't understand if you've never gone through it yourself. Yeah. And just being empathetic. Yeah. Well, when can we expect this book? I am hoping for sometime this year, but I can't make promises. The manuscript is being edited. Okay. So everybody keep your fingers crossed for me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sending you good vibes. I hope it comes out soon. Well, Amelia, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us. I know it took a lot of courage and strength. And so I thank you once again for coming on. And um, before... I let you go. Can you please let everyone know where they can find you so they can stay abreast of when that memoir comes out? So I have a website, ameliazachary.com. Mm -hmm. And that's where I do short stories and you can get get a taste of my writing and insight to my life with bipolar and post-trauma processing. Mm -hmm. it's ameliazachary.com I'm also on Instagram brown girl crazy world (laughs) I love it so check me out and also on Facebook as brown girl crazy world (laughs) thank you so much hon I wish you all the best and I know you're doing some great things and I applaud you thank you so much for having me and holding space for me today this was amazing (laughs) take care so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the is that so podcast for more information on this episode and all past episodes you can check out my show notes on is that so.com or follow me on instagram at is that so if you enjoyed this episode and want to show your personal support to the podcast simply leave a review on itunes or screenshot today's episode in the podcast app and share it to your stories all right friends that's it Tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Is That So podcast. And I look forward to hanging out with you again soon.